You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 11, Nutrition and the Brain. According to the World Health Organization, obesity has reached epidemic proportions globally, with more than 1 billion adults overweight and at least 300 million of them clinically obese. Carrying excess body fat is a major contributor to the global burden of chronic disease and disability. Can delving into our evolutionary past as nomadic bands of hunter-gatherers hold the answer to this growing problem? Dr. Alfonso Abizade of the Carleton University Neuroscience Department is an expert in how hormones regulate eating, and he's joining us today to discuss the facts and myths about nutrition and your brain. So Alfie, why are we all getting so fat? If you had asked that question about 100 years ago, people would have said that it was a lack of self-control or self-regulation. And generally, people that were overweight were actually viewed as having as being weaker or having uh, less willpower unfortunately it is more complex than that in reality uh, in a way we're biologically uh, biased towards gaining weight through the process of evolution uh, we are actually gaining weight because a million years ago when our species you know was roaming around the savanna uh, well, they couldn't dial for pizza when they were hungry. They had to bring down very large animals, uh, work really hard to track them, work really hard to fight them and kill them. And then when they had the opportunity to eat, they ate. And those people that uh, didn't have the right sets of genes, right? The genes not only that, that, that uh, increased appetite and and uh, I call them the greedy genes, right? <laughs> the genes that, that sort of helped us to detect those animals, helped us uh, uh, predict when they were going to come around, but also those genes that allow you to put on weight for the times when those animals were not around, the lean times, the winter times, or the, uh, the dry seasons in the, in the, in the uh, regions of Earth that were near the equator. That fat, that extra fat, helped us survive uh, in those lean times. What are the other reasons that we are obese it's not only a genetic predisposition that we have inherited through mm -hmm. evolution but we also have uh experienced in the past hundred and or so years a, a major change in our lifestyle right a hundred years there were no cars or, or very few cars people walked people uh, moved around quite a bit to get to wherever they needed to go it's like our parents tell us, oh, I had to walk five miles to school uphill and five miles back uphill. Many of us, so we've moved from rural communities to cities where we sit around in offices, where we drive an hour to work and an hour back. And then when we get home, uh, we sit around in front of the TV to watch the game and uh, we order pizza because that's easy. And, mm -hmm. and, and if you go around your neighborhood, there's probably 17 different choices of restaurants that are affordable and that you mm -hmm. can go in and, and consume large amounts of calories uh, for you know relatively cheap price. A million years ago, we had those foods that you know we had to fight hard to bring down. Now we have them at, at the uh, tip of our fingers. And we have food that is different, right, than our ancestors? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, so for our ancestors to, to get an orange, it was very difficult, right? They had yeah. to find them and they had to be in season. And, and, and uh, they were the oranges that were not genetically modified, like mm. the ones that we are consuming now. So, uh, so now we have foods that are, for the most part, genetically modified so that we get cows that produce large amounts of milk that is high in, in proteins and fats. 
Uh, we have uh, corns that, that pack uh, an extra punch in sweetness. Um, and we have, uh, you know, and once those foods are processed uh, and, and get additives like uh, uh, corn fructose syrup, which is a product that is in most of the packaged foods that we buy, uh, well, we're, we're, we're getting a diet that is, uh, you know, packed in, in calories. I've heard know? this is the standard American diet or the SAD diet, right? This highly processed foods that are high in fat, sugar, and salt. And the food industry is particularly savvy at exploiting our natural environment, like adaptive response to crave or, or be motivated to consume those kinds of food. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, you, you, we mentioned the greedy genes, right? right. These are, these are the genes that, that, uh, essentially allow us to detect those things that we really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, uh, and that, uh, essentially prepares and cause the anticipation and, you know, the cravings for, for those things that have been reinforcing in the past. Uh, and of course, for 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 uh, a wanderer of the savanna, mm. finding an orange must have been a, a great gift. Right? Finding a Big Mac would have been well, even better, right? That. Am or I finding right? A, 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 <laughs> you know, a muffin, a chocolate chip muffin, or Some Cheetos, or a cheesecake from. You know. Oh gosh! Yeah. And is there anything else in our environment that we might be exposed to that could also be? contributing to increasing rates of obesity? Well, you know, we talked a little bit about the types of foods, but we really haven't discussed, for example, stress as a potential uh, environmental factor increasing uh, obesity. And, and, and of course, stress, uh, when we are undergoing stressors, well, that is in a way uh, what we would call a metabolic challenge. We mm-hmm. need to, to, to produce energy to deal with stressors. And when you produce energy in excess, well, you're going to need to consume a little bit extra food to, to make up for the deficit. Uh, the problem is that when we suffer stress uh, uh, in, in, our, in uh, human populations, often the stressors are not stressors that are uh, you know, immediate. Right. Uh, oftentimes we think about stressors. So we're not thinking about a lion chasing us across the savanna. We're actually thinking about you know, how we're going to pay our mortgage next month or how we, you know, whether our children will have enough money to pay for their studies or whether we'll have enough money to retire. So we are, we are uh, putting stressors that are not immediate, but they're at the forefront in our, in our heads and we're constantly thinking about them. Um, we also may live in environments, social, you know, we live in large cities where in some cases uh, people live in close quarters People work in close quarters, and those social stressors seem to be very effective in, in causing not only stress response, but also overeating in people. Um, and of course, when you start overeating, uh, people don't overeat lettuce or, or <laughs> celery, right? Why do they overeat? Well, why do, they, why do our greedy genes tell us to overeat? Well, the high-calorie... Big Macs, exactly, donuts, things that, muffins. That immediately make us feel better. And because they make us feel better, we reinforce the behavior in the future. So when we get stressed, we go for those things that make us feel better. Why don't you take our listeners through um, sort of a typical response where, you know, what's happening in our body when we're hungry so that they, you know, we can better understand how those hunger cues and satiety or fullness cues might become dysregulated in, in various circumstances, like when we're stressed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really, regarding of, regardless of your genetic makeup and, and, and regardless of individual differences on, on body weight, most people have what we call a, a homeostatic point, right? A point where, uh, you know, 
uh, all things considered, you feel at, at, uh, at peace. Uh, so you're not hungry, you're not over, you know, you, you don't feel full. And this is really what your body is in constant, uh, uh, in, in a constant surge of that magical point, of mm -hmm. that specific point. Um, now, when you, when uh, during a particular day, you go through these variations, daily variations within that set point, within that homeostatic point. Uh, but there are times where, for instance, uh, you haven't had food for, say, a period of 12 hours, right? That's that's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, but a lot of people do that, right? People, okay, students people will, that are studying hard. But yeah. think about how many kids, elementary school kids, go to bed the night before. They uh, have supper so. at 6 right. o'clock at yeah, night. Yeah. And then they go, they wake up in the morning, and they have to take the, the, the school bus, and they don't have anything to eat until they get to school. That's almost 12 hours, right? Sure, okay. So what happens, and, and sometimes they won't eat anything until lunch. Oh, wow. Uh, and this, I mean, this happens in low-income uh, sure. school environments. Mm -hmm. They may not even have a food access until to the food. next day, right. right? Until the next supper time. But when your body goes through a fluctuation like that, right, you will go, uh, you will see signals like, say, a drop in, in glucose levels. Uh, you will also have certain hormones that are produced uh, in your gut that normally are telling you that that the gut is full. They, those will also drop because your gut is empty, right? So the levels of those hormones will drop. You have this this hormone that is produced by your stomach called ghrelin uh, that actually does the opposite. This hormone actually is uh, released when you haven't had food for uh, uh, for a certain amount of time. Uh, your gut will start, your gut and your stomach will start producing ghrelin, and that hormone hits different parts of your brain to stimulate appetite. So, are these the so-called short-term signals of, of of hunger? So, so ghrelin and another hormone ghrelin is a short-term and long-term uh, uh, appetite signal, but mostly okay. short-term. Okay. Um, Signal, uh, signals like uh, 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 there's a hormone called cholecystokinin, mm -hmm. which is produced by your stomach when your stomach is full. Mm -hmm. That's a short-term, uh, what we call satiety signal, right. uh, a signal that decreases your appetite. Mm -hmm. So, of course, when, you're, when you haven't had food, CCK levels drop, ghrelin levels go, go up, up. Okay. and that starts telling your brain... Um, you know, you need to eat. Right. Uh, you need to eat. You, you, you're low in sugar, right? Sugar level, even sugar levels, a drop in sugar levels will start stimulating certain cells in the, in the brainstem that also start driving. Uh, um, so does, it sounds like most of these things start in the periphery, like in the gut. Is that correct? Or are there brain signals that's, uh, that, that start early too? So that's a, that's a terrific question. And, and yes, for the most part, this, this, internal hormonal milieu mm. will, will start signaling things. But let's just say you're driving home and you see um, that big M, you know, <laughs> the magic the big M, M, the, magic the M golden that you, arches that, you, that you've known since your childhood. Right. right. And that big M is associated with so many happy memories, right? Like the, you know, like the playground at the, at the restaurant, uh -huh. like the little toys that came with your happy meal, uh -huh. like the, they're so smart. Those yes. People. Right. And the, the colors, the, the smells. colors, the smells and, and, uh -huh. and all of those memories in themselves trigger and target the same areas of the brain uh -huh. that are targeted by the internal hormones and they have a very similar effect right and um uh so so it's in, it's interesting and and important to know that 
you can become hungry not only from those internal signals, but also from those cues. Mm. From those, so and internal and external stimuli exactly. and can probably coincide, probably. External, right? and, and this is, again, evolutionary important, right? Because when we were looking for those foods, those those pathways, those the pathways that, that, that enable you to detect those cues that predict food were probably also important for survival. Those told us, oh, yeah, I remember that spot. That's where the nice fish were, or mm. that's where the buffalo hang out, uh, or you know. Sounds like a, a yeah. song, <laughs> buffalo hangout. <anyway. laughs> so so um, so yes, so those those uh, brain regions that that uh, detect the cues and that tell us that you know food is around are yeah. also really. So what are those critical. brain regions? Uh, so so. In 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 most vertebrates, these regions are found in the in the uh, uh, brainstem and midbrain. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, when we detect a, a stimuli, uh, well, or when we experience a particular reinforcing stimuli, you have a, a subset of cells in the in the brainstem or midbrain. If you look at higher order uh, mammals. Um, uh, you have this set of cells that produce dopamine, mm-hmm. uh, and when we experience something reinforcing, these dopamine cells become activated. They release dopamine in a number of regions in the, in the forebrain. Uh, and that in itself, that particular process is what we call a signature of reward. Mm-hmm. Now, the cool thing about these cells, though, is that following repeated presentation of the same mm-hmm. reinforcing stimuli, they actually begin firing in response to not just the stimuli that produces the reward, but also the things that can predict the reward. That's Wolfram Schultz's work, right? Exactly. Cambridge, yeah. Exactly. Showed that the cells actually stop firing in response to the primary reward and only fire in response to the stimuli associated with the reward. Exactly. And the reward can be food, but it can also be sex or it can Mm. also be... Uh, drugs. drugs of abuse, mm-hmm. and 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 this is why this system is 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 of great importance, and 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 the topic of study for for many neuroscientists, not just those that that study feeding. So we're hungry, we're driving by a McDonald's, Graylin's being released, mm-hmm. dopamine signals are starting to fire. We pull into the McDonald's, we order our Big Mac combo, and we start eating. What's happening? Well. So, so yes, as you said, and ghrelin, actually, I, I do want to mention something that is really cool about ghrelin, and that is that ghrelin, uh, ghrelin goes and travels to the brain, and within the brain, it can target those same dopamine cells that, you know, your nervous system is stimulating mm-hmm. in response to the cue. Well, ghrelin can also stimulate them. So you have so it's a like double a double hit. Ah. Exactly. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, so you start consuming your, um, uh, your food, uh, and the first thing that you that your brain is perceiving is the taste of the food, the texture. You have all of this sensory, the the the, the interaction between that and the olfactory system as well, which provides the fullness of the taste. Uh, and in some cases, if the food is disgusting, right? If the food is not, uh, it's, if, if it's bad, spoiled, it's bad, spoiled or it's something or bitter, whatever, yeah, uh, you may instantly stop eating, and and that may curtail your appetite. Right. right? So you have direct projections from those sensory cells to areas of the brain uh, like the ventral pallidum, which is really important for taste and reward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also have projections from the brainstem to, uh, from the sensory system to the, uh, uh, to, to areas of the cortex that are important for the, uh, the, the integration of uh, um, aversive 
uh, aversive right uh, so in the in insula right there's yeah. a lot of that yeah so uh so yes so cells in the insula will process that and would immediately stop uh or 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 immediately halt Inhibit. appetite yeah. um so those yeah that's fascinating so you can have like immediate yeah cessation of, of food Hold intake because often like as you've heard i'm sure you know too most of us just kind of mindlessly eat and especially if we're not paying attention to what we're eating we can just keep going and going and going right so there's like that visual cue of of food which is important in curbing appetite but most most of us rely on sort of that stomach fullness right yes so so is it kind of like a balance? Like well, what? So, so as as that food is traveling down your your, yeah. your gastrointestinal tract, you have uh, you know you have signals that are produced by your stomach. I mm -hmm. mentioned cholecystokinin as yeah. one of them, uh, but you also have signals like uh, like leptin, for example. Right. Leptin is released by adipose tissue, it's fat tissue, uh, and uh, um, generally, as we start eating, there's also a decrease in the, uh, an increase in the secretion of, of leptin, right. while at the same time, a decrease in the secretion of ghrelin, which we spoke about right. before. So that sort of increase in CCK, increase in leptin. There's another hormone called GLP-1, uh, right. ga uh, gastrointestinal-like peptide 1, which is uh, uh, really also important for the regulation of appetite, but also sh uh, uh, insulin um, insulin action in, in, mm -hmm. in all tissues. Uh, so all of these signals start coming in stronger, mm -hmm. right? Uh, ghrelin decreases and that in itself becomes the satiety phase of, of a feeding episode. So do all of those things need to be happening for you to stop eating or is it, so, you know, like, so all of those things happen. And yes, if you in start conjunction, if, like if you start you know, uh, uh, putzing about with yeah. the signals. If yeah. you start utilizing some drugs that say block uh, okay. CCK receptors, yeah. you may, you know, uh, attenuate the satiety sure. signals. Okay. Um, but for the most part, after we eat a certain amount, but like some people eat way more. Do you know what I mean? Like, my husband's always like, ah, you know, when I serve people, when they come for dinner, they're like, he's like, Kim, serve them in a regular amount. Cause I eat like a bird. Mm -hmm. So I eat very small meals, but I eat frequent meals. So, you know, well, individual is, uh, differences in how much we eat in one sitting, like clearly well, people can override. Absolutely. Right. Like, like that. Well, I, and some people actually, this is a, this, a, a very, uh, well-known fact. And it's, it's actually being reported in the literature is that the size of your meal, because again, some of those interceptive signals come mm. from, you know, just even uh, what you see on right. a plate, right? And if the size of your plate, right? You, There's all that yeah, psychological literature people, yeah, yeah, that show people a, bigger a large plates. plate with, a, yeah. with the same amount, right? Yeah. Then a small plate, then they'll tend to eat. Yeah. yeah. More. More because they perceive the, the meal as being smaller. Right. Right. So um, maybe that is, that's probably adaptive, right? Again, that you, if you had a really large meal, and you didn't know when your next meal was going to come from, you would override those satiety, you know, satiety signals and just like, keep going. Well, the, the other thing too is that some people just eat very fast and the, the, the timing which they ingest uh, uh, a certain caloric load, mm -hmm. right, doesn't allow for those satiety signals to mm -hmm. hit the brain yet. So if you, right, I've heard this. It takes 10 minutes to feel full eat, or something. Say a pound of pasta, right, yeah. in, 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 in five minutes. Uh, you may, you may not, your brain may not be receiving those satiety signals. And if you go for seconds, right, by the time you eat the second plate, right, that's just when those signals are starting to get there. So 
a lot of these satiety signals are hormones produced by your gut, by your stomach and your and your upper intestine. The hormones are released into the bloodstream and they do travel through the bloodstream and they will and they will be sensed by by specific cells in the brainstem. Uh, but you also have uh, a subset of, of uh, cells that uh, form what we call the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these cells are also sensitive to these signals, and they are influenced by, by these signals, so they can rapidly, uh, uh, once these hormones are released, they can rapidly be targeted by these hormones and then modulate the, the, the activity of the brain. Uh, the vagus nerve is... The vagus nerve is uh, Probably the the what I would say is the biggest conduit of uh, uh, gastrointestinal signals from and to the brain. Good old vagus nerve, man. Uh, that yeah. thing, the vagus nerve is is the tenth cranial nerve, named for the vagus uh, vagrant or the wandering nerve, yeah. and it travels virtually every major internal organ. Also sensitive to stress, which is interesting because it's that you know when you feel stressed, your gut. You know, you get that sort of rolling gut feeling, but we'll we'll get we'll talk about that another time. You know, we've talked a little bit about uh, what's happening when you're hungry and those cues that are uh, triggering hormones, internal, external, and then a little bit about you know when we're satiated. And I want to touch more on, and I know I know that you study ghrelin, but I'd love if you could sort of talk a little bit more about what your research focuses on for our listeners to understand a little bit more about the role of ghrelin in feeding and, and rewards. So if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners Absolutely. a little bit more about that. So, so yes, ghrelin is, uh, as I said, a hormone produced by the stomach and the receptors for this hormone, the, the proteins that are capable, of, that, that enable cells to, to, to sense ghrelin and to respond to ghrelin are found in, in a number of organs throughout the body. Uh, but the ones that obviously, as a neuroscientist, the ones that I'm interested on are, are the receptors found in different brain regions. Um, now, when the hormone was discovered, of course, uh, and the receptors were discovered, well, people found that the receptors, as, as one would expect, would uh, cluster primarily in a region of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is uh, very important for this homeostatic processes that I, that I, that I spoke about. Uh, so, so in general, a lot of the, the effects of feeding, the, the inappetite that, that are produced by ghrelin are produced through the actions on the hypothalamus. Uh, Ghrelin also influences energy expenditure, right? Your, your metabolic rate. So, so you know that you have some people, like like you were saying, your husband mm-hmm. that can eat anything and doesn't gain an ounce, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, some people have a very fast metabolism. Some people have a very slow metabolism. Well, ghrelin is one of these hormones that uh, not only influences appetite but also slows down your meta- your metabolic rate. So you burn less calories uh, for any particular function. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you're a, a wanderer of the savanna, that's a good thing to mm-hmm. to have. If you're not, you know, if you're a wanderer of the polar of the North Pole, that may not be such a good idea. Um, but anyways, uh, ghrelin ghrelin also targets other parts of the brain, and this is the the thing that that really interests me. Uh, parts of the brain that are important for for this reward-seeking behaviors and for the stress response. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what I study in my lab is uh, how does ghrelin influence the reward systems? Uh, does ghrelin increase the appetite not just for food, but perhaps also for sex or mm-hmm. the appetite to interact with other conspecifics, uh, uh, and even the appetite to to engage in 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 uh, drug drug abuse drug mm-hmm. intake because the like that's one of the interesting or you know common facts about brain anatomy is that as the brain 
uh, evolved and added more complex hardware to the system, it wasn't like it started from zero. It's it just added like the increasing software circuitry to the existing hardware, right? So it would probably make sense to to capitalize on a system that's already in play to do not just feeding, but also regulate other motivated behaviors and therefore can be targeted by other drugs of abuse. So yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so really, I think of ghrelin as part of this greedy system, right? Mm. This, uh, the ghrelin, the genes associated with ghrelin as part of those greedy genes that, that uh, we have evolved uh, over time to, to be able to find and, and, and uh, you know, be effective in, in the search for calories, in our constant search for calories. And you mentioned that also you study the role of this hormone in, in, in the context of stress, right? So what happens to these signals or the circuitry when the organism is stressed? So mm -hmm. one question I want to, you know, I've asked you this before, and um, I think it's a, it's a great question that I, our listeners would, would appreciate the answers to is, why is it that some of us, when we are exposed to acute or chronic stress, and maybe there is differences there, uh, lose weight and other people gain weight is you know what's going on why is there individual differences or is there like initially you lose weight and then you gain weight or you know can you can you give us some answers as to why what's what's happening yeah um, and it's still a, a a very hot topic of research uh so in general uh well first of all i do want to say that i've been referring to this sort of circuitry as the reward seeking yeah. when uh, we all know that dopamine cells are also stimulated by stress, right? So, so what's really important to take from this is that just uh, as we have uh, uh, evolved to be very good at detecting those things that predict rewards, we're also very good at predicting those things that predict something that is unpleasant, right? Right, and this system is very, is, is literally highly conserved. In, um, yeah. And the, yeah, the, the dopaminergic system is very important for both functions, right? Uh, I should even not refer to it as a reward-seeking system, but more as a, a motivation, um, appetitive, aversive. Exactly. Yeah. So just you get as much reinforcement from getting a, something that avoiding, you really got yeah. as, as you do from avoiding something that you really don't like. Right. So, so in that sense, uh, it makes sense that, that, you know, ghrelin would also be important for mm -hmm. the stress response because it may help you avoid those things that you, mm. it may, it may provide um, or, 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 or help the whole system right. detect those things that, that, that you can, that can predict something that is unpleasant in the future. So is it involved in learning? It is involved in learning. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, again, some of the projections from these dopamine cells are to regions of the brain that, uh, that are associated with learning and memory, right? Whether it's the amygdala or the hippocampus, uh, both of them part of the limbic system that is uh, critical for for uh, learning about, you know, the environment that you live in, learning about uh, fear, emotional responses, um, and learning from those uh, emotional responses. Uh, well, those... VTA dopamine cells project to these regions and they allow, uh, 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 and ghrelin facilitates uh, uh, the release of dopamine in these regions potentially to. So, increase. does it go up when we're stressed? Yes. So, ghrelin goes up when you're stressed. Uh, the, the, the increase in ghrelin following an acute stressor is, is very quick, very right. mimics very much what happens with cord. So normally then if ghrelin's released, like I know if you inject somebody with ghrelin that like they'll like, it triggers like a craving for like tasty food. Mm -hmm. So does that make sense that then you're, 
you're creating, you know, you go and you eat French fries and then it brings down the stress response. So is that sort of a, a learned response to, to cope with the stressor? There's a, yeah, there is a, a lot to that. So we, let's just, let's just consider the following yeah. case, right? Yeah. Uh, because we mentioned some stressors make you lose appetite and yeah, it makes yeah. sense. You don't want to eat when you're trying to get away from something unpleasant. Right. right. Uh, but what happens when, you know, let's just say you are a child that is being bullied at school. Okay. Well, when that child is being bullied at school, he probably has not much appetite for lunch. If he's been bullied all morning, right, right. by the time lunchtime comes in, he's probably not feeling because he's still within an, the environment in which he's being stressed. Right. When that child gets home, however, where he's more calm and, calm and, and safe and safe, right? Well, that's when you have the, 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 you know, and, and all throughout this time, okay. you have this ghrelin levels that increase because of the stress right. when you get home. So it's related to the time course yeah. of the stressor. So the immediate and impact, your, your kind of your stomach's in knots, it probably, right, your uh, sympathetic nervous system is probably shutting down exactly. all digestion. So you're, but you know, when, that's once why. that part of the stress response is gone, I'm gone. ghrelin levels are still, still high. high. Right. And so that may drive you to eat. Licorice, that, candy bars. Yeah. And, and, and what are you going to eat? Obviously not the lettuce or the right. celery. And if right. you're a kid, which, you know, uh, so that's a common thing. And we found in our lab that is those social stressors that are really, mm. uh, that are really good at increasing ghrelin levels. All stressors are, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we've learned about not just ghrelin, hormones in particular, is that we often typecast them, right? Ghrelin is the feeding hormone. Oxytocin right. is the love hormone. The hugging hormone, hormone. yeah. But in reality, um, ghrelin is also an anti-inflammatory hormone. So when you're stressed and you're releasing ghrelin, it may not just be for appetite purposes. It may be to bring down inflammation cool. should you get injured. Um, ghrelin mobilizes uh, uh, carbohydrates in your liver. So again, it helps you burn the cheap calories, right? To, so you can escape from a particular event or fight somebody, right? Um, so, so, yeah, we have to be careful and not typecasting right. the hormones. There, there are many different functions. And, and it may be that when you're you know, going through an infection and you have increased ghrelin levels but no appetite is not just because of you know the, uh it's not just because ghrelin is not having what you thought it was it's, it might be that it's a an anti-inflammatory event i like this notion don't typecast the hormones alfie's like like let's let's increase the diversity of the roles so um I guess I kind of want to wrap this up talking more about the disease state. So uh, do you believe that, um, like, uh, this is something that I, you know, I know my belief in, but do you believe that food can be addictive? It's, it's, a, it's a definitely a, a, a contentious issue. Mm. Uh, some people believe it is, some people don't. I guess part of the argument is that... Uh, Food in general is not a, I mean, you need food to survive. So is, is it, you know, it's argue, you can't argue that it's addictive when you need it to survive. But there are foods that, you know, I mean, if we're talking about the coca leaf, this is my favorite example. Mm. When people chew the coca, they sell it in teas in, 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 in Colombia and Peru, yeah. right? You can buy coca leaf tea and that, you know, people use it as a stimulant like coffee. Right, but it's when you process that leaf yes. and you and you bring the elements of that leaf that 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 produce a very potent stimulant, right? 
uh, well, similar to, to, to sugar. You know about these experiments where rats are asked to choose between sugar and cocaine mm-hmm. uh, after, you know, experience with both, and they'll go for the sugar mm-hmm. 100% you know, of the time. Um, so, uh, so in general, some could argue that there are specific foods that are highly addictive, uh, and those are probably the ones that contain a very high amount of carbohydrates and, 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 and fat, um, that are particularly potent at, yeah. uh, activating that reward system. Yeah. And I, so I know in, in my field in, in, in your field, the addiction world, there's now, you know, movement towards understanding binge eating disorder, which is a, a disorder that is marked by consuming large amounts of calories in one sitting, nor, more than one would normally consume, uh, without any purge, right? So it's it's not like bulimia involves the binge and the purge, whereas binge eating disorder is only the binge. And now there's mounting evidence to suggest that binge eating disorder may may actually represent um, individuals that would, uh, you know, the vast majority of individuals that are obese, right? So it's people that are consuming all these high calorie, high sugar, high fat, uh, foods in one sitting and feeling a loss of control over that, uh, consumption, a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. Uh, it's often used, um, uh, to combat feelings of depression and anxiety. And so do you, do you know, in ghrelin and, and specifically in maybe other other hormones what their role is in things like binge eating disorder or even broadly eating disorders in general like what do you, do you think they play a role is there a major role like yeah it's a, it's a, it's a good question and it's yeah. one that that we are asking in our lab as well uh we think that perhaps uh, an alteration in ghrelin levels is not the cause of, the, uh, of binge eating disorder, but it could be a target for a treatment. And the reason mm. why is, is that uh, 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 patients or clients with binge eating disorder uh, do show, for example, higher levels of ghrelin, uh, especially in anticipation of, mm. uh, of, uh, of a binge, right? And one of the things that we would like to see is to, uh, to create is a... Is a some form of treatment that uh, allows to reduce those ghrelin levels, at least in, in, in because a lot of the people that, that binge uh, will do when they're stressed, when they're, when right. something triggers, usually the triggers that, that. Uh, so would it be like a pill that you would take um, prophylactically or would you take it like you're feeling the need to binge, yeah, and you would take it right away. And I mean, generally, generally this happens, usually, uh, uh, in, in, in people that, 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 that suffer from this condition, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the things that trigger, uh, the triggers for, binge, for binging usually are associated with life stressors, right? Right. So um, in, in advance of, right, exactly. like a stressful wedding where you're going to see your ex-husband or whatever. Or, would... or even a weekend, right? right. Where, 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 you know, people tend to eat more on weekends, mm. right? In general. Uh, so, so when you're facing a number of, you know, when you're facing, uh, the potential to eat again, all of those Mm -hmm. triggers, all of those cues that, uh, they're more sensitive to those cues. So potentially if you can block ghrelin concentrations, uh, in anticipation of these events, right, you may be able to, to, to curb the cravings, right. Or you may be able to at least reduce the, uh, the, uh, uh, reduce the, 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 the amount of food that they eat, yeah, right? Yeah. When they do binge. But do um, you like 
you know, this is sort of a contentious issue is around pharmacotherapy uh, for eating. Do you, do you foresee any challenges with having a drug used to oh, treat obesity? I mean, all drugs, all drugs uh, have side effects. Right. And, and, and again, as I said, uh, drugs that, you know, as I told you before, that ghrelin yeah. targets the dopaminergic system in the, in the midbrain, right? So you're going to uh, have perhaps lower libido. Yes. As a result, consequence. Of, a lot of the yeah. times, a lot of the times, uh, 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 like many drugs that block dopaminergic function, can lead to depression. Can lead to, uh, you know, uh, so so it's not something that uh, that that could be taken chronically. I would say, but again, if we're talking about something that is event related, that is, uh, um, you know, not something that a person is taking every single day, uh, it might be helpful. So based on that, do you have any um, diet recommendations for our listeners? Like what, you know, given that we have this high availability of, of food that targets, uh, you know, our, our dopaminergic pathways, you know, what do you, what do you recommend? I think that if we take, take, taking together everything that we yeah. have discussed, I think that, yes, there are a number of ways, easy ways, really, that I wouldn't say easy because dieting is never easy, but uh, ways that can help us curtail uh, curtail our appetite are simple things, right? Like taking your time to eat, right. allowing those satiety signals uh, and, uh, and and those hormones that change in response to our the food that we're consuming kick in, mm. right? If we if we have that plate, take our time eating that mm. first set of uh, uh, that those calories, we may find that you know that we eat less. We eat less yeah. because those satiety signals kick in. You don't need to eat that second. Hashtag food. slow food. Exactly. Mm. Uh, another thing too is that uh, um, decreasing the number, because again, you know, one of the things that is associated with obesity is is lack of sleep, right? Mm. Um, one of those, uh, and one of the reasons for that is that be- what happens when we are awake, we're not that different from those rats or mice in the lab. Those rats and mice live in cages; they're bored. What's the thing that they that they can do or they to, do to stimulate they, us to give us something to think about? Exactly, do, they go and grab eat. a pellet of food and they just no. chew on it, right? But that's not different than you know if you or I are watching that hockey game from the West Coast. <laughs> right. We decided to stay up and watch those Vancouver Canucks play the uh, Calgary Flames. Sure, we and, did. Uh, <laughs> and now it's midnight and you're only in the second period. And what are you gonna do? Well, poutine. Gonna, let's get that pizza. Let's dial in for pizza, or let's have a beer, or let's right. have a popcorn and a beer. And and food uh, is regulated by like circadian. Exactly. Rhythms, right? So oh, yeah. you're also disturbing those circadian signals, right? Which could then Absolutely. have a learned response. Staying up late generally yeah. leads to another meal. Right. Um, so you're just consuming more calories yeah. over a, a One short of the most of interesting papers of ghrelin in all time was uh, uh, published by uh, Dave Cummings. Uh, he showed the ghrelin variations across the day in human, in human volunteers. Mm-hmm. And he showed that there was a, you know, before every meal, there was a rising ghrelin, right? Which was really cool because he showed that what you just said, the entrainment of mm, the ghrelin to right, the meals. Right. But one thing that, that is really cool in that story is that if you look at the subjects at 10 to 11 o'clock at night, right, they have this blip in ghrelin. And the blip in ghrelin is probably the actual natural, you know, ah. diurnal and uh, not diurnal, nocturnal yeah. peak in ghrelin concentrations that humans have. On their natural conditions, but it's masked by our 
because you know? we have artificial light and we're asleep. Exactly. Or, and we have I'm, meals yeah. every day at the same time, right? But if you Isn't look at cool? these guys, they have this blip at 10 or 11. So if you're awake Wake. at a yeah. time between 10 and 11, you you're might having get the another munchies. Meal. That's the explanation for the munchies. <laughs> right? For the munchies, the late night munchies. Late night munchies. Um, Not the pot-related munchies. No. Which we'll, that's we'll a, save that we'll, for we'll another, about it another, <laughs> another episode. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Alfie. My pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible in part by rainwater, covering the earth in fresh water for over 4 billion years. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.